Well, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We find ourselves here in a new section of Paul's tremendous letter to the church at Rome. And as Paul has undertaken to detail the gospel that he preached in the most full detail that he gives us anywhere in Scripture, he also then takes the time here in Romans 9 through 11 to defend that gospel. The gospel that the Apostle Paul preached was not the invention of a human being. It was not the fusion of Jewish culture with Greco-Roman culture in some way that was socially acceptable and was received by a certain segment of that population. It's not just a, a movement in religious circles like other religious movements, but instead what we have is a continuation of the revelation of God of himself to humanity. But there were questions that would arise as Paul was preaching his gospel and people would say, well, is it really a continuation of what God was doing in the Old Testament with Israel? Because if it was, if the message that Paul preached that was largely rejected by the Jews everywhere that he went but it was largely received by the Gentiles everywhere that he went. They'd, they'd say, well, that just doesn't make sense to me, you know, that we have this Jewish Messiah, but the Jews don't believe in him while the Gentiles are believing in him. So that caused a lot of people to doubt that this was really a truth that had come from God or that Paul was really preaching a message that was consistent with what God had said in the past in the Jewish scriptures. So that's why Paul takes the time here in Romans 9 through 11 to show us that the gospel that Paul and the other apostles preached is not an invention. It's not an innovation. It is the continuation of the work of God in salvation that he has begun in the book of Genesis and has continued to reveal throughout the course of history. So you could say that as we come to Romans 9 through 11, we've shifted our emphasis from the justification of sinners, which is really what the gospel is about there in the opening chapters of Romans. And now we're focusing on the justification of the gospel. That is the defense of the gospel, showing that the gospel is true and that it is right. So let's read there in Romans chapter 9. We're going to be covering this morning Romans 9 verses 6 through 13. And as we read Romans 9, 6 through 13, we have the opening question in verse 6. Has God's word failed? And then we'll see the answer to that question in a contrast between two sets of brothers. Isaac and Ishmael, brothers, Esau and Jacob. Not just brothers, but in fact twins. So look in your Bibles, starting in verse 6. I'll read it out loud for us. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so... But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, 
and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, as we read through these verses, I want to remind you that the word of God is spiritual food. That man shall not live on bread alone, but we shall live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I like how Jesus quoted that and how Moses wrote it originally. It's every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Nutrition is a complicated thing. I've been trying to learn more about nutrition lately and, and think about you need this vitamin and you need that mineral and, and you need you know, this amount of calories and, and all this type of thing. And it all is pretty complicated. And there's lots of different diets and lots of different plans. But here we have in Scripture a spiritual diet that God has laid out for us. And we don't pick and choose and say, well, this section is what I like. I'm just going to eat this part of the Bible. But instead, we take from the whole of Scripture. We teach the whole counsel of God so that every word of God nourish our souls. And God knows you better than you know yourself. He's the ultimate nutritionist when it comes both to physical and spiritual nutrition. He designed us. He created us. He knows what it is that we need. And so here, as we've begun Romans 9 through 11, though there are some difficult things in these passages, and sometimes preachers will shy away from these chapters for that reason, the parts of Scripture that we might think are less desirable, they might in fact be what is exactly what we need. And so it's great to be here in Romans 9, 6 through 13 this morning. As we read through the text, Paul introduced the problem there in verse 6. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed, which of course implies that some people suspected that the word of God had failed. And what does that mean? In what way were people thinking that the word of God had failed? Well, I've got a quote here that is really to the point. I think I found this from a commentator, J.C. Beaker. And in his commentary, he wrote, the gospel to the Gentiles has no foundation and no legitimacy unless it confirms the faithfulness of God to his promises to Israel. And so that's really the issue here. That's the question here. Does the gospel that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, that he writes about here to the Romans, and he traveled all over the Roman Empire preaching, does it have a foundation? Is it legitimate? And it will not be that. It must confirm God's faithfulness and his promises to Israel or else it is an innovation. It is a creation of man. It is just a cultural religious movement if it does not confirm God's faithfulness and his promises to Israel. And so that's Paul's burden here is to show throughout these chapters that the gospel of Jesus Christ does confirm the faithfulness of God and his promises to Israel. Now you need to, to understand the, the depth of this difficulty because I think sometimes we just kind of glance over it because we're not Israelites. Now if you go to Israel today and you try to share with the Jewish people there that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he's the Messiah of Israel, they're going to say, no thank you. 
I don't want to hear about Jesus. Don't try to convert us. We appreciate you evangelical Christians. We love that you love Israel. We love that you want to come over here and, and visit all the sites that Jesus went to. And, and we're happy that, that you love Jesus and worship Jesus. Just don't expect us to do that because we know that Jesus is not our Messiah. We know that, that Jesus came that he died and that Messiah is supposed to come and live forever. And we know that Jesus came and, and then a short time after he came, Jerusalem was destroyed and the Romans sent us out among the nations and scattered us. And the Messiah, when he comes, well, that's when Israel is going to be exalted. That's when Israel is going to be glorified. That's when all the promises of God to our nation are going to come true. And most Israelites, they don't even really believe in a, a personal Messiah. They think that the, the nation of Israel itself is the Messiah, is the anointed of God. And so you've you got to realize that the Jewish people do not see Jesus as the true fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And, and they look at history and they say, yeah, no way is Jesus the one that is our Savior because just look at everything that's happened to Israel and all the terrible things that's happened to the Jewish people. And, and the Messiah doesn't bring that. The Messiah brings the fullness of blessing to Israel. So that's the idea that Paul is really confronting here. Why have the Jews rejected? And does that undermine the, the legitimacy of the gospel? And even beyond that, Look at all the promises of God to Israel in the Old Testament. If the gospel that is in the New Testament contradicts that, then it's obviously not a fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures. Now, as we look at Paul's answer to this issue of, of has the word of God failed, we're dealing with apologetics. We're dealing with a defense of the gospel. And you see here that Paul, as he answers this question, last week Paul talked about all the privileges that Israel had, their national adoption, the glory of God dwelling among them, all of the covenants of promise, the giving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and last but certainly not least, the greatest blessing of all, the Messiah comes from the stock of Israel. And so with all these blessings, Paul wants to clarify and make clear that, that there's one thing that's not here on this list that the Jewish people added to the list, but is not really a part of the, the, the blessings that they had. That the Jewish people had presumed upon one more blessing that was actually not a blessing that they had received, and that was personal election and personal adoption for every Israelite. See, the Jews misunderstood national adoption and God's choice of them as his nation to indicate that, well, then that means that all of the individuals within Israel are also going to be saved. So it's an individual adoption and election to go along with the national adoption and election. And Paul says, no, that was never one of Israel's blessings. And I can prove it to you from the Jewish scriptures. You see, when we're defending God's word, we first have to know what God's word is to know what it is that we're defending. We can't defend something that God never said. We can't defend a promise of God that he never made. So when the people of Israel misunderstood the word of God, when they misapplied the word of God, well then they start to think, well then the word of God has failed. 
But of course, the Word of God has not failed. They just didn't understand what the Word of God was. And Paul's going to demonstrate and show that here in these verses this morning. Has the Word of God failed? The Word of God cannot fail. And Paul has been leading up to this discussion. He's been hinting at these chapters in Romans 9 through 11 since the very beginning of his book. Back up to Romans chapter 1. Let's take a look once again at the opening words of this letter. So Paul's not coming out of left field here with this discussion of what is Israel and what are their blessings and how does this connect with the Old Testament and the New Testament. But from the very beginning there in verse 1, as Paul introduces himself and his subject, he talks about the gospel of God. He's been set apart as an apostle for the gospel of God in Romans 1.1. And then he says this about the gospel, which he, that is God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So right there at the very beginning, the first thing that Paul wants to tell us about the gospel of God is that God promised it beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You see how he's making that connection, that the gospel is not an innovation, it's not new. This is a continuation of what God had said. This is a fulfillment of what God had promised. So he's putting it right there because he knows that's one of his major purposes in writing the letter. And you come down to verse 16 in Romans chapter 1. And as Paul gives his thesis statement for the whole letter, there in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul didn't have to put that in there. He could have just said the gospel of God is, is the salvation of God to everyone who believes. But he wants to emphasize the Jewishness of the gospel, to the Jew first. So that's one of his major goals in the letter. In fact, when you come over to chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, he gives a preview of Romans 9 through 11 here in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He raises the question there in Romans 3, verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? And the some here is referring to Jewish people. What if some of the Jewish people didn't believe? What if they were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So that's the idea here. If the Jewish people don't believe and they reject the Messiah, when God had promised them the Messiah, if they reject that new covenant and don't receive the new covenant, well, does that mean that God's promise has failed? God promised the people a new covenant. God promised the people of Israel that you will all know me from the least to the greatest. And now the Messiah comes and they don't know him. They still reject him. Like, well, what happened, God? I thought your promise was that you were going to save Israel. Why isn't Israel saved? Right? So Paul is dealing with that here. He gives a short answer for that question in verse 4. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And he quotes then again from the Old Testament. And he talks a little bit about it. But really, he saves the discussion here for Romans chapter 9. So here in our text today... Paul is going to answer that question, has the word of God failed? God promised salvation to Israel, Israel is not receiving that salvation, so what does that mean for the faithfulness of God in his promises? So Paul answers the question in verses 7 through 9 and verses 10 through 13. Let's take a closer look at verses 7 through 9. Back in Romans chapter 9 verse 7, he says, 
Well, actually, it starts in the second half of verse 6, so let's make sure we get the whole sentence there. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is why our title this morning is Israel Within Israel. You've got those who are physical descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and that physical line of descent is still called Israel. And he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to this spiritual Israel, this Israel within Israel. And you say, well, what a second there. Paul, what are you talking about? Well, he's going to explain. All right, so let's keep on reading here in verses 7 through 9. He says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So here you've got Isaac and you've got Ishmael. Ishmael is not specifically named in these verses, but he is in view because Paul is contrasting the physical descendant of Abraham with Isaac, who is the one who receives the promise. So Paul's point here in bringing up Isaac and Ishmael is very simple. Just being a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're going to inherit the promise. How do we know this? Ishmael was a physical descendant of Abraham. And Ishmael did not receive the blessings of the promise. It was passed on through Isaac. So if you're just looking at physical descent, the Bible at the very beginning establishes the principle that being a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that you're going to receive the blessing of all of the promises that God had made to Abraham's descendants. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Now, people could argue with Paul on this point. They could say, well, yeah, Paul, that's true, but Ishmael was not a physical son of Abraham's wife. Ishmael was a physical son of his wife's handmaiden, her servant. And so you can't imagine that God was going to pass on the blessings through this one who, yeah, he was a descendant of Abraham, but, but not the legitimate son of Abraham through his own wife, Sarah. Well, yeah, I, I could see that. that. That's a good point. And Paul... Therefore, he doesn't just leave it with Isaac and Ishmael, but he's going to say, okay, fine, if you want to argue that way, God gives us a second example that will make it clear that that objection is not relevant to the discussion. Because when you come to Esau and Jacob in verses 10 through 13, what you have are two brothers who have the same father, the same mother, and in fact, they are twins, so they were conceived at the same time, and that is going to show us, because Esau, a physical son of Isaac, just as Isaac was a physical son of Abraham, and yet it's not Esau who receives the blessing of the promise, but it's Jacob. So only one of these two sons receives the blessings of God that he had given to Abraham and passes those on through his line. 
So just being a physical descendant of Abraham, just being a physical son, doesn't guarantee that you are going to participate in the blessing of the promise. That's the principle that Paul is establishing here from these examples in the book of Genesis. Now you see that Paul quotes repeatedly from the book of Genesis and the book of Malachi throughout these verses. I mean, how many quotations from the Old Testament do we have? We've got the first one there in verse 7, and then he explains that. And then he got another one in verse 9. And then you come down and he quotes again in verse 12. And then he quotes from the book of Malachi there in verse 13. So you've got four quotations in this one paragraph, this small section. And this is going to continue throughout Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9 through 11 is just infused with Old Testament Scripture. Paul is bombarding his argument with Old Testament Scripture because his main point is to show that his gospel is consistent with the Word of God in the Old Testament, that he has not departed, that he is not an innovator, but that he is in fact a true messenger of God in the line of of the Old Testament prophets, now a New Testament apostle from God. In fact, if you count up all of the Old Testament quotations here in Romans 9 through 11, you end up with around 27. And that's almost a third of all of Paul's quotations in all of his letters. So just three chapters, and Paul wrote a lot of chapters, contain a third of all of his Old Testament quotations. That shows you how much he wants to show that his gospel is in accord with the Old Testament in these three chapters. That's the big idea. So let's talk a little bit more about Isaac and Ishmael. Paul here quotes from Genesis concerning the birth of Isaac to Sarah. And this is an important story in the Old Testament. You know, when we, we go back and read the book of Genesis, sometimes you read it and you're just like, what is all this here for? Uh, you know, this guy's doing this and this guy's doing that and nobody seems to be doing what's right and you've got all kinds of, of di disputes and problems and it just seems like some kind of soap opera that you're reading here in the Old Testament. Like, what does this all mean? What's it all there for? Well, it's all there for a very important purpose. And, and Paul and other writers in the scriptures, they help pull out the meaning that is in those stories, that, that God gave us the stories in order to illustrate a point. You know, we ask the question, what's the moral of the story? Well, there's a lot of great moral of the story that you can find in these texts. So when Paul quotes from Genesis... He's taking Genesis 18:14. He's kind of mixing it in a little bit with a previous verse in verse 10. And he's got somewhat of a loose quotation there, coming down to verse 9, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So the quotation there in verse 9 is a kind of a mixture of Genesis 18:14 and Genesis 18, verse 10. This is something you find with New Testament quotations. Sometimes it takes a couple of different passages, slam them together, and give you the, the main idea of the whole. And in this text, what we see is the difference between the child of Sarah and the child of Hagar, and how this is the difference between being a child of promise and being a child of of the flesh. Paul deals with this much more in depth. He just kind of references it here, but he gives a more in-depth explanation in his letter to the Galatians. Would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 4? 
Galatians chapter 4 in your Bible. That'd be great to go back and read all of Genesis 18, and I encourage you to do that in your own devotions or family devotions this week. But here in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is explaining to the churches of Galatia, he wrote this letter to a region that had several different churches in it, and that they'd been infiltrated by Jewish false teachers who were undermining the gospel and were in fact preaching a a different gospel that wasn't about justification by faith, but it was by keeping God's law. And so they were legalists in the sense that they were saying the only way to be right before God in his courtroom is by keeping the law. And that's the kind of legalism that Paul is dealing with here. Paul's not saying, well, you're supposed to live uh, an immoral life and just trust God and go to heaven. That's not his point. His point is, you can't be justified before God by keeping the law, but it's only by faith in Christ. But these Jewish teachers were coming in and, and teaching contrary to Paul's gospel, so Paul has to go again back to the Old Testament and show them that my gospel is the one that is in accord with the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul does that in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. He uses this argument from Sarah and Hagar. Follow along. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. See, they wanted to be under the Mosaic law. They thought that was the way to be justified before God. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, Sarah, was born through promise. There's the promise. I will return about this time. Sarah shall have a son. That's a promise. Paul makes a big deal about the promise of God and faith in God's promises. That's what faith is, right? Now, verse 24. This may be interpreted allegorically. There's meaning, there's significance in this story about Hagar and her son and Sarah and her son. God has spiritual meaning in the text for us. That's what Paul means by allegorically. These women are two covenants. As a correspondence, there's a relationship here, a typological relationship. These women, you could say, represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, now notice he's he's speaking to churches who might have some Jews in them, but largely Gentile believers. He says, you are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who had been born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. This idea of of the promise versus our own actions, our own deeds. Because you look at the birth of Ishmael. It wasn't a supernatural birth. It wasn't dependent upon the power of God in that sense, that it was a natural course of a man having a child when his wife wasn't able to bear children. That was the way they did it in those days. 
But when you look at the birth of Isaac, this is a supernatural birth. This baby was called laughter because nobody could believe that a mom and a dad would be able to have a baby at their age. God waited until they were too old so that it would be a miracle baby. It would be done by the power of God. And this is how salvation is accomplished. Salvation is not accomplished by us doing our best, using our own power and our own ability to be good enough for God. That's the, that's the way of Hagar. That's the way of Ishmael. But when we trust in the word of God, we trust in the promise of God, and then we see the power of God do what we cannot do for ourselves, that's saving faith. Saving faith is the gaze of the soul away from ourselves to God and what he can do and what he has done for us on our behalf. It's not what I've accomplished. It's what he has accomplished. That's faith. And so that's Paul's big idea here between the child of promise versus the child of the flesh. And that's what Paul is also drawing upon here in Romans chapter 9. When he says, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That word offspring, key word, very important word in understanding the promises of God, that the promises were given to the seed, the offspring of Abraham. And the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, the offspring of Isaac, not Esau, but instead Jacob is the one who is the seed who receives the promise. Not just the natural child, but the natural child who also is the child of the promise. That's the idea here. The miracle baby of Isaac, the child of laughter, is the impossible story, as I mentioned. And God, he, he does this throughout Scripture. You come to Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, Jeremiah cries out, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. There's nothing that's too hard, nothing that's too difficult for God. And about the most difficult thing that God could ever undertake is to cleanse you of your sin and make you a child of God. That's the impossible thing that God has accomplished. That's what no human being could ever do, to cleanse ourselves from our sin, to make ourselves holy in the sight of God. But God is able to do what man is not able to do. That's the whole idea. That's the point. You come to the birth of John the Baptist. You've got the same story. His parents are too old. They've given up hope. She's barren. Never had a child. And God gives a word of promise to Zechariah. And Zechariah can't even believe it. Give me a sign so that I know this is going to come to pass. And the angel says, I stand in the presence of God and, and you're not going to believe the, the message that I'm giving to you so you can be quiet and not say a word until the baby's born. There's your sign. You're mute. All right. And then when Jesus is born, Mary hears that even though she's not married, she's never been with a man, that she's going to have a baby. And she's like, how is that possible? And what does the angel tell her? Nothing will be impossible for God. So that's the idea, the flesh versus the spirit, the power of God and the promise versus what human beings are able to accomplish for themselves. So Isaac and Ishmael represent that, but let's also take a look at verses 10 through 13 with Jacob and Esau. All right, so back in Romans chapter 9, verse 10, 
Not only so. Let me give you another example. Let me give you a clearer example, an even better example of God's choice within the physical descendants of Israel to show that just being a descendant of Israel, Abraham, is not enough, but instead you have to also be the one whom God has chosen to receive the promise. Just being a physical descendant does not automatically make you a receptor of the promise. That's the idea. That's how we know that the word of God hasn't failed with the unbelief of the Jews at this time. So Paul says this, Also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, and you see he's, he's speaking to his Jewish brothers, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul says, God chose Jacob, and he rejected Esau. That's really what love and hate here means in Malachi chapter 1. It's not talking about God's emotional response, so to speak. It's not saying, well, you know, God liked Jacob's personality better because, you know, Esau was a hunter and God doesn't like hunters or something like that. That's not at all the point. It's not that there was something about Esau in his moral personality or his non-moral personality that was repugnant to God. No, it's just talking about God chose Jacob for his own purpose, for his own plan, and he rejected Esau from being the one who was going to receive the blessing of the promise, the blessing of the covenants of promise. Now, this goes in contrary to the law of primogenitor. Esau was born first, and so he should have been the one who would receive the greatest blessing from his parents. That's the way the culture was. But God goes contrary to the natural way things happen in their culture in order to show that it depends upon God's choice and not upon anything within ourselves. That's the idea. That's why God did it. And Paul is rightly drawing that principle out from the story. Paul's not reading it into the text. He's pulling that meaning out of the text, the main reason why God put the story there to begin with. He's properly handling the scripture here. So let's take a closer look at the choice of Jacob and the rejection of Esau. We have twin brothers, not identical twins, but they were conceived at the same time, born within the same time frame. But only one of them received the blessing. So logically, if physical descent were enough, then Esau would be a part of the covenants of promise. But he's not a part of the covenants of promise. So therefore, we can conclude with certainty, not a probability argument, this is a conclusive argument. If physical descent were enough to get into the covenants of promise and receive the blessing of the covenant of promise, then Esau would have been a part of the covenants of promise. But God rejected him and did not make him a part of the covenants of promise. Therefore, physical descent does not make one a recipient of the blessings of the covenant of promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and then to Jacob. And that same principle carries... Just because somebody is Jewish 
doesn't mean they are going to receive the blessings of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament. Now, they're going to be a part of God's holy nation. They're still on on the national adoption. They still got the giving of the law. And if God allows them to, they could have temple worship again there in Jerusalem. They're still given the promises, but in order to benefit from these things, personally, that's where they have to be chosen by God. That's Paul's point. There is a national election and there is also a personal election. Now, as different Christians come to this text, they struggle with that. They're like, let's not get so caught up on election. Let's just talk about the promise of God and why some Jewish people aren't saved and how we can still be Christians and believe the Bible is true, even though not all Jewish people are saved. And, you know, we all as Christians can agree on that, right? Just because some Jewish people aren't saved, that doesn't mean that the new covenant isn't true. So every commentator that is a Christian that comes to this text agrees on that. But notice Paul's reasoning. Paul reasons on the basis of election. And so you can't just set election aside and say, well, that's not important, because that's the basis of Paul's argument. Now, you could say, well, the choice of Jacob and Esau, it's not about personal election. It's about national election. And so let's not make this passage about personal election. Let's just talk about national election, because Esau represents Edom, not chosen, not a part of God's nation. Jacob is Israel, God's nation. And really, that's what Malachi is talking about in chapter 1 when he says, Esau I hated, but Jacob I loved. He's talking about the nation. He's not talking about the individual. Well, look at Paul's argument. Throughout this passage, Paul is not making a hard and fast distinction between national election and personal election, but instead he's using national election in order to illustrate principles regarding personal election. These two are intertwined in the sense that one of them teaches about and informs the other. So while it is true that Jacob represents Israel and Esau represents Edom, still, throughout the passage, Paul talks about Jacob and Esau as individuals. Because that's who they were in the book of Genesis. Yeah, when you come down to Malachi, you're looking back hundreds of years. Now you're talking about the nations that come from them. But Paul talks about Jacob and Esau, not just from Malachi, but from the book of Genesis, when they were individuals, when they were children conceived by one man. He talks about them as individuals, that they had not yet done anything good or bad. And that we're talking about the older serving the younger, Well, yes, that does reflect in their national history that's yet to come, but it also is reflected in their own personal life. The fact that Jacob got the birthright and Esau lost his birthright had personal consequences in their life. The fact that Jacob got the blessing and Esau didn't get the blessing, well, that had personal consequences so much that Esau wanted to kill Jacob for taking his birthright and for taking his blessing. And so it's not just national, but it is also personal. And this is what God does throughout the Old Testament scriptures. He's, he's teaching principles from the history that is recorded there. So it's not just about the history. One thing I really want to point out here also about Jacob and Esau is that not only was Isaac a miracle baby, so to speak, 
But God continued this trend also with Rebecca. If you go back with me to Genesis chapter 25, let's, let's do that. Let's head back to Genesis 25. Here's the verse that Paul is quoting from in Genesis chapter 25, that the older will serve the younger. That's in Romans chapter 9 verse 12. But I want to back up a little bit and get some of the context here. Paul would have been well familiar with and was in his mind. He just quotes one little part of it, but he's thinking about the whole big story. And in Genesis 25, let's pick it up there in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So we give a lot of details there. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Why did God have all of these patriarch wives barren? You know, he's the sovereign God. He could have had them marry women that were able to have children. They're all barren, one after the other. And it's because God wants us to see that the plan of God, the promise of God, the blessing of God comes from him and his power. And so how is it that Rebekah, who was barren, was able to have children? Well, it's because Isaac, who was blessed of the Lord, prayed to the Lord for his wife, the one whom God had chosen to pass on the land, the seed, and the blessing from Abraham. He prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so then you find out about Esau being born, and then Jacob, and then the rest of the story tells how God's word comes to pass. Now, if Paul didn't want to make this passage about personal election then why did he put verse 11 in there? Come back to Romans 9, verse 11. His point could have just stood that being a physical descendant is not enough in order to receive the promises, and he could have given the, the two examples that he does give, and he could have left it at that. we got Isaac and Ishmael, Esau and Jacob. But notice in verse 11, Paul points out that God chose Jacob and not Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. He specifically states that. Now, if God was going to look ahead in time and say, I'm going to choose Jacob because I think Jacob is going to value the birthright more. You know, Esau, he despises the birthright and he sells it for some stew. So I'm not going to choose Esau. That's not what the text says. It doesn't say God looked ahead and saw that Esau was going to despise his birthright. It says when they had not yet done anything, good or bad, God made his choice. Which shows you that God's choice is not based upon anything that they would do. Paul wouldn't say this if he had in his mind, well, it was based upon what they were going to do. But he specifically points out that it has nothing to do with them as individuals. They hadn't done anything yet, either good or bad. But on the contrary... It's in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And that's where we're going next week. Because as Paul introduces the doctrine of election here in verse 11, he knows that it's a difficult doctrine for us. 
he knows that people have a hard time with this and people say, hold on, that doesn't seem fair. Why is it fair that, that God would choose Jacob and reject Esau as babies before they had done anything and irrespective of anything they were going to do, that's not fair. If God's going to give blessings to Jacob, he's got to give blessings to Esau. You can't just choose arbitrarily for no reason at all. So Paul's going to deal with that. He's going to say, well, how is it fair that God chose Jacob and rejected Esau? That's our next paragraph. That's our next sermon. But today, let's sum up what we've talked about, what we've learned. I want to make two points clear. The first point is the positive point that Paul is making. Paul is making the point that just because someone is a physical descendant of Israel, Jewish people in the world today, Jewish people over in, the, in God's holy land of Israel, that doesn't mean that they were going to receive all the blessings and all the promises that God had made to Israel. That establishes the fact that Israel's unbelief has not shown that God's word has failed. That's his main idea. But I want to throw in the second idea that is important for us as Gentiles to recognize is that I'm not a Jew. You're not a Jew. I'm not an Israelite. You're not an Israelite. What we're talking about here in these verses is the Israel within Israel. Just because not every Israelite is a part of the inner Israel that does receive all the blessings and all the promises the salvation of God, doesn't mean that Gentiles who receive the salvation of God are now Israel or Jews. The Bible always maintains a distinction between our different ethnicity, that Jewish believers are Jewish believers, Gentile believers are Gentile believers. Yes, we are brought into one body in Christ. We have spiritual unity. We've got the same hope, the same God, the same Savior, all of that unity, but that doesn't destroy the ethnic difference. Same way with male and female. The Bible says that in Christ, there is no male and female. And yet we still have our genders. I'm still a man. Jamie's still a woman. I still act like a man. She still acts like a woman. Just because we have this spiritual unity, this spiritual identity, doesn't destroy other aspects of our identity or, or diminish them. And so Jews are still Jews. Gentiles are still Gentiles. Don't get confused on that. The only thing Paul is saying here is that just because someone is a Jew doesn't mean they're saved. That's the idea. So we'll end with the thought that we began with. The gospel to the Gentiles has no foundation and no legitimacy unless it confirms the faithfulness of God to his promises to Israel. And does the New Testament confirm the promises of God to his people Israel? Yes. Yes. We've just begun to demonstrate that. Paul has just begun to demonstrate that. He's going to show it in the rest of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the Bible itself ends with the book of Revelation, which is going to show us how God confirms his faithfulness to his promises to Israel. And if not, if you don't have that, then you don't have truth because God cannot contradict himself. If he made promises to Israel and doesn't keep those promises, then he's a liar. And if God is a liar, well, we've got serious problems. That's why these chapters are so important. And when you step back and you think about it, 
I mean, what really is the main thing that comes across through the Old Testament? You read through. Maybe you have. I hope you have. You read Genesis all the way through Malachi. What is the big idea that those books combine to overwhelmingly impress upon the reader? God is faithful to an unfaithful people. That's it right there. God is faithful to an unfaithful people. I mean, you see it over and over and over again in every generation, in every book. Israel's unfaithful. God is faithful. Israel's unfaithful. God is faithful. So we come to the New Testament, and what do we find? Israel's unfaithful. Whoa, big surprise. Didn't see that coming. No, Paul says they've always been this way. It's all a part of God's plan. And keep with the story, and you'll see exactly how God confirms his faithfulness and his promises to unfaithful Israel. And we learn a lot about God from that story that's helpful to us and is food for our souls. Let's pray. God, it is so encouraging to know that you are true, even if every man on the earth is a liar, that your promises are confirmed that they will never fall to the ground, that you will not let one word of yours fail, but that everything will be fulfilled exactly as you have promised. And that encourages us to know that there's a certainty, there's something we can rely on, there's a place for us to stand, and that is the truthfulness of, of your own word. We give you thanks for it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.